I suppose that having grown that quickly over a period of time means that we've always been challenging ourselves with new things mm. and whether it's new building types or new ways of working in a way maintained a fairly sort of entrepreneurial mindset and yeah. yes we love a new challenge we love yeah. exploring and something new the team at the business of architecture and design welcomes back isabel tolland director of aileen sage architects a practice she and amelia holiday established as their alter ego We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralises your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. For this episode, Isabel is joined by our guest, Megan Dwyer, Principal at John Wardle Architects. Megan Dwyer is a principal at John Wardle Architects with over 20 years of experience as a practising architect. She has led numerous major urban, public and institutional projects across Australia. With offices in Melbourne and Sydney, JWA have been highly awarded, including National Institute Awards for Educational and Interior Architecture, the RIBA Award for International Excellence, two Sir Zelman Cohen Awards for Best Public Building in Australia, two Robin Boyd Awards for Best Residential Project in Australia, as well as two Victorian Architecture Medals. Megan is particularly passionate about public buildings and urban places. She regularly participates in design reviews at all architecture schools in Melbourne and has chaired and participated in numerous awards juries. We're delighted to have Megan with us in the studio today. Welcome, Megan. So maybe if you could start by telling us a bit about your background. Where were you born and what was your family like growing up? Absolutely. Well, I was born and bred in Melbourne and, in fact, um, so was my father and his father before that. So we're, we're, we feel very connected to place as a, as a family. My mother is from uh, regional Victoria. I grew up in a sprawling house that was constantly undergoing renovation. So some of my earliest memories are skipping across the floor joists, for example, between the floorboards coming up and new floorboards going down. So I was very used to construction activities sort of happening around me. Both my parents were makers and collectors, so I was constantly sort of exposed to various things, whether it was renovating furniture or hanging wallpaper or, or creating a really beautiful garden. And I think that that really gave me a sense of agency that that I could shape the environment around me. And I do often wonder if that is part of what led me to become an architect. So where did you study architecture? I studied at Melbourne Uni, yeah. And do you think that your studies while you were there shaped to a certain extent the path that you took after graduation? Were there any particular people or teachers that you had there that really inspired you? Do you know, I'd have to say it was it would be a combination of many things. I think while I was at Melbourne Uni, I was able to take electives in um, fine art and urban design. And so I think that the school offered me a, a sort of really rounded education about design and, and in a way history too. But that in combination with um, travel, for example, I, I think travel was particularly important for me. And in my year out, I, I sort of did a world trip and I went to see many, many of Le Corbusier's uh, projects th through India in particular and then right. around Europe. He was an 
an absolute favourite of mine at that that time. So it was completely exhilarating to to go and see his work too. Which particular projects of his were you most inspired by? Do you know, I just found the Shandigar projects to be absolutely extraordinary and I, I was lucky enough to sort of find my way into all of those buildings through some mm. means or another. I just loved La Tourette and Ronchamp as well. They were um, completely extraordinary and yeah. and very moving actually to see those. Did you stay at La Tourette when you were there? I didn't, you know. Um, no, I sort of, for me, that was a an early morning train ride and a, right, a yeah. long walk and then back again in the other direction. But um, nice. yeah, really wonderful to see. So you graduated in 1994 and after your graduation, what was the path that led you to where you were today? What was your first job out of uni and, and how mm. did you end up at JWA? Well, you know, while I was at uni, I sort of developed this really deep fascination for urban design and cities. And I do remember thinking that if I were to start my own practice, I'd, I'd be starting at, at small scale and not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to engage in some of those um, sort of bigger projects. So quite unusually, I I did have the view that I would join a, a practice rather than start one. Mm-hmm. But on graduating, the thing that I really most wanted to do was wrap the Reichstag with uh, Christo and Jean-Claude. And so, in fact, in my, I, I became aware that that project would go ahead in my final year. And part of, part of well, a side project, I guess, was to, to find a way to do that. And that was sort of, first of all, working out how to get in touch with them and, and then writing off to them to see if that was a possibility. It didn't actually eventuate, but I think what it did teach me is that, well, I observed a lot about their work and I I um, thought they practised very much like an architect does, but I mm. just thought they created these amazing public conversations about what the city should be and what should happen in public space. And that was completely captivating for me. I just really did learn a lot from observing their work. Yeah, their practice is particularly fascinating. I think especially one of the things that I've I've realised most about, you're looking at their work quite closely as well, is that patience is such an important factor in our industry too, mm. in the sense that they have an allied industry and they've had so much patience <laughs> over the time mm. that, you know, looking back at over their projects, I remember seeing that some of the proposals that they've now started realising, you know, were proposed back in the, I don't know, 60s yeah. or 70s and somehow they've persevered and, <laughs> and not been deterred by this whole thing. Yeah. I suppose mostly Christo now, now that Jean-Claude's no yes, longer around, yes, unfortunately. But yeah, they're pretty amazing, aren't they? They're amazing. Yeah, really inspirational. And amazing too in terms of thinking through a business as well and how you can actually, you know, make that work and stack up and deliver a project like that that seemingly has no kind of commercial drivers behind it or I don't yeah. know, just, yeah. It's remarkable. Quite, <laughs> quite yeah. impressive, isn't it? So where did you start working, did you say? when? You- so with that failed attempt yeah. to work with uh, Christo and Jean-Claude, I went to work with a firm called Parrot Lion Matheson who right. uh, no longer uh, exists, sadly, but the lion uh, is was the father of Kerry and Hamish and Corbett and Cameron Lyon, mm-hmm. who are all um, well-known and respected architects in Melbourne. Uh, and so they were a practice that um, that did do large-scale work starting from um, quite early times and I really – I thought if I did want to work in sort of public and institutional projects, I'd, I needed to learn how big practice worked and how big projects worked. And so that was my rationale, I guess, for uh, for working there and it certainly was eye-opening for me. And so I did that for a number of years. 
And then, in fact, my colleague Stephen Mee rang uh, one day at work to, to let me know that he and John were looking for someone to join the practice and would I know anyone that was interested? And I said, hmm, perhaps let me think about that. <laughs> um, but the next day I did call back and say um, perhaps I would be interested. Right. Um, and I did go for an interview with – I was one of three. There was an external panel oh, uh, right. involved in that uh, right, particular – Yes. So how big was JWA at the time? It was seven at the time, so I became uh, number eight. And it was at a time when the practice had already won a couple of quite large commissions and so they they were on a a growth uh, trajectory and within Mm -hmm. a fairly short period of time the practice was up around 25. So, Mm -hmm. and the larger commissions at the time, were they institutional projects? Um, Actually, there there were one or two. The, The largest were probably commercial and so the external panel John and Stefan had brought on to kind mm. of <laughs> be part of that interview? Yes, yeah. So it was uh, Andrew Hudson, who's a, a been a friend of the practice for a very long time, and Tony Musson, who in fact was one of my lecturers at university. John just felt that he, he wanted some external insight into who he might hire. And in fact, that is, a, that is something that John has done very often in the practices, um, seek the views of others. That's very interesting, actually, in terms of like a point of difference, I think, in terms of JWA, that it is very collaborative and does bring on these external perspectives mm. constantly, from mm. what I can tell, which is, yeah, I think a particularly interesting way of working. So you joined at that time when the firm was you know, quite small, I suppose, and as you say, mm. growing quite rapidly. So at the time, did it did it expand to the 25 quite quickly once you started there at the practice? Mm, I would say within 12 months or so. Yeah, Yeah, right. we were up okay. around 25. It's quite quick, quite rapid growth. Yeah, and, and what kind of led you then from that initial position? So w- w- you engaged as a kind of project lead, say, at that time? Yeah. And then you progressed, um, you know, over the years to your role currently as a principal mm. at the practice. Could you talk us a bit through that journey at the practice? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the the interesting thing about joining the practice at the time that I did is that it offered me the opportunity really to grow in parallel with the, the practice. And so initially I was project lead on a project for the CSIRO and I took that through construction. Soon after that, we won a large project in Adelaide for UniSA, which comprised three buildings in a single commission, so quite a challenging project in many ways. And I had the opportunity to step into that as the project architect. And while that stretched me a great deal, it was also an opportunity to grow and and actually incredibly rewarding if we reflect on what we achieved there. So I guess I came to focus a bit on the university work and as again, as the practice has grown, I've sort of stepped more into a, a project director role than a project architect role. And yeah, so I sort of tend to lead our work in that area along with some other very sort of experienced and talented people mm-hmm. in the practice. And more recently, we've found that the expertise we've gained in the education sector, in fact, is very applicable to other kinds of um, public buildings. Yeah. Yeah. So you're finding now, um, I guess, compared with when you started off early in your career, as you say, you know, there are a lot of crossovers in in project typologies. It's not so much that there's this specialist kind of educational typology or institutional typology that becomes very blurred with public buildings and this kind of broader thinking around precincts, I suppose. Mm. And so 
Uh, is that where you've kind of find have found that your experience is leading you towards these more diverse projects in broader fields that you've you know gained all of this learning in in previously in a particular uh, typology? Yeah, it's absolutely relevant, and in in sort of many ways. I mean, one th- one way I would think about the university work is that we've we've sort of done probably ten libraries by now. But if you think about the time span across which we've done them, the library itself has changed really significantly, and so. The, the way that, and, and then of course we've worked on libraries and museums and art schools, architecture schools, mm. scientific research buildings. So one great thing about the university sector is there's just such diversity in the building types actually that we yeah. we do. So we've always sort of remained fairly fleet of foot in terms of thinking about typologies, and we've always reflected that they're that they need to be thought of from first principles each time. So mm. I think as a practice, we've developed this skill to be able to listen very carefully to the client's requirements and respond in a really creative way. So we don't sort of see ourselves as experts that have a a fixed approach, let's say, to to what we're doing. And that kind of agility um, allows us to to, um, think about how a university might fit into a precinct or how industry and university might come together in unique ways. Well, certainly that kind of marriage of industry and, and education or commercial and business activities with, with education too seems to be crossing over more and more. So I guess that agility, as you say, is quite important. And do you think that that's perhaps been part of what has led to the success of the practice? So how big is the practice now? Well, we've got about 90 in the Melbourne studio and 14 right. up here in Sydney, quite a few more so than eight when right. I started. <laughs> So in terms of this kind of agility that you have working Mm. between typologies, I suppose it's more like an approach that you have to projects. You know, often when you talk to businesses, say, or especially larger architectural practices, they might see themselves as having a particular focus in an industry like education, Mm. say. And Mm. I think the natural inclination might be to think that JWA kind of um, has a very good, solid experience in education. But as Mm. you're saying, it's not so much necessarily education because you're thinking more broadly about, you know, how education fits in with the with the whole network and fabric of the city, I suppose, Mm. more broadly. And I think that, you know, perhaps that thinking has, I don't know, would you see that there's being part of the success of the practice, that there has been this incredible growth for you? Yeah, I I suppose that having grown sort of that quickly over a period of time means that we've always been challenging ourselves with new things Mm. and whether it's new building types or new ways of working. So we've sort of, in a way, maintained a fairly sort of entrepreneurial mindset. And yes, we love a new challenge. We love exploring something new. Maybe that challenging, challenging yourself is part of what is so intriguing perhaps that I find about JWA too because it kind of feeds into that idea like you said that John and Stefan brought in external perspectives even just to interview you too Mm. and I think I mean do you do that much with your projects too invite external people to review and comment on your kind of proposals and designs and how you're working on a project as well? Well the way that we'll often construct a team to bring in some external expertise from a sort of allied um, discipline, if you like. And look, we see great value in doing that. As you would know, we've also sort of partnered with other design practices to Mm. um, design things together. And we just find that the, 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 there's just such enormous value in in seeking other perspectives and yes. learning from others that we, we are very open to that. Perhaps it kind of keeps you on your toes too and like absolutely, <laughs> yeah. you've got to answer to people too. And yeah. So coming back a bit more to the practice and your time, you know, you've been there for 19 years now, almost 20 mm. years. Mm. How much has it changed as a practice, you know, from a day-to-day experience uh, over that time? 
Do you know, we reflect on that question a lot because we're, we're very conscious about maintaining culture and we just know that as we shift scale that, that becomes a, a different proposition um, mm. each time. And so their practice has changed significantly. I guess as a small practice you, you can be sort of more agile, less um, formal about process and things and you, mm. you sort of always know what's happening in the space um, if you're working with eight people rather than, say, 90. We... We've had we have implemented many more systems, uh, and our attitude to those is that it's really about making people's jobs easier, so that we can focus on the right things. Mm. Um, and so that's how we decide sort of what to implement. I guess we're very conscious about maintaining um, culture, as I, I mentioned before, and that extends to the to the way that we work together uh, and to the activities that we do together outside of project work. Um, yeah, we're, we're very mindful of that. So as you say, you know, the, the shift from quite a small practice of, say, eight or nine people to 25 to 90 to mm. 100, whatever it is in mm. total. Across what, two locations. Yeah. So how what, – what sort of structures did you start implementing – at those, at each of those stages that you felt were kind of important to maintaining that culture? Because as you say, it is very different to, you know, the scale of the practice, the way that you operate, I suppose, has to shift. So what kind of formal structures do you now have in place around sort of maintaining that, that healthy work culture environment? Look, there are a lot about how we um, deploy our, our people really. And we, we, we just appreciate that those with the responsibility of leading projects need to be able to deliver on mm. the commitments that we've made. And so we do um, pay quite a lot of attention to sort of planning how we can do that across a whole series of, of projects. And it, it's not a straightforward task. No. Um, and we need to sort of, uh, I guess, deploy our people at the, on the right things at the right time. And yep. if we can do that, it just makes everyone's uh, job easier and much more enjoyable. Um, Have you employed technology at all in helping you manage uh, the practice? Yeah, yes. So we have a, a sort of resource planning tool that we use and the way that we do that is we ask uh, each project leader to to develop a, a resource plan and then we mm -hmm. put them all together and, and in, you know, invariably we have to tweak a bit to get it all to work. But yep. if we can do that, it does mean that we've got our teams running really smoothly and we've got uh, the right expertise being deployed at the at the right, right moment. Time. So do you yeah. feel that is was that something that was adopted quite early on in the practice or more recently? Oh, look, it, it, as we grew, it became more and more important. Mm. And we, we probably used quite rudimentary rudimentary uh, techniques at the start. And uh, the system that we use now is quite a sophisticated digital system. Right. And does that mm. feed into other programs? So is that kind of around resourcing um, and forecasting yeah. management yep. and does that feed into then you know time management as well across the office yes. or is, yeah okay so yeah, it's yeah. all one kind yeah. of comprehensive system that yep. you use yep. across both offices as well between Sydney and Melbourne yes yeah right. yeah yeah how do you communicate and work between the two offices in Sydney and Melbourne so you started the Sydney office last year is that yeah right? just at the, with, at the very end of last year first thing this year yeah look we we um we're somewhere between um thinking of ourselves as one studio or one philosophy and two studios. So we're yeah. sort of sitting somewhere in there. There's a lot of travel back and forth. John in particular is spending quite a bit of time up here in Sydney. We've we've got a couple of principals up here working on a particular project at the at the moment. Mm -hmm. 
there are definitely Sydney-based people. It's just that we're, we, we have the good fortune of being able to kind of offer a small team the support that um, the big team in Melbourne has. Mm. Um, so, for example, we have a specialist facade architect who will, will work across the two studios right. um, until perhaps the Sydney studio is large enough to have their own. So do you envisage the Sydney uh, studio growing much as well or you is that a sort of a, a very considered plan that you have or are you just sort of seeing how it goes in, t- in terms of um, the setup of the studio and what happens in terms of projects here? And Look, we would like it to grow a bit more. We, we've we always had a, a fairly sort of fluid approach to, to growth and, in fact, I would say it's mostly been sort of centred around opportunity uh, and so, you know, we might um, win a fantastic project and then that's what would cause us to grow. Do you feel that you've faced any particular challenges as a female in the industry to progress to your present role as a principal of the firm? Well, look, I would. if I think back to when I started my career, there were many occasions when I was the only female around the table. Uh, there was a period of time where I was the only female in the practice, at, not at JWA in, right. at Perrot Line Matheson. And, you know, it was very infrequent that you would see a female on site, for example. Mm. Um, and I've got to say, if I reflect today, that there has been a significant change there and we are seeing women engaged in the industry a lot more than, than back then. I think that that just does make it easier for women if they – I think the dynamic and the way that the industry communicates has probably shifted mm. a bit um, due to that as well. And, yep. and I think that just allows – a more diverse involvement generally, mm-hmm. it's a really positive thing. And do you mm. see, you know, is that something that you actively engage in as a practice too to ensure that there is a strong level of gender diversity within the practice at all different levels? Yes, we're really conscious of that. I, I just did some investigation before coming here today mm. and overall we are our gender balance is sitting roughly at 50-50 and if I look at our leadership team we have 40% women we have two female principals out of seven so we're we're less sort of even at the at, right at the top but mm. we're certainly um, working on on making it a much more balanced workplace yeah we we introduced a a um, parental leave policy last year which is um, 16 weeks paid leave for primary carer two weeks paid leave for secondary carer mm-hmm. uh, and we do hope that that encourages women to work with us and we, we certainly do value uh, well what we do find actually is that the time that uh, a couple might think about having Children is, a, is of, often quite well aligned with a certain level of accomplishment that they've yeah. achieved in their careers and it yeah. is a, um, awfully disappointing to kind of lose that from the practice. Mm. Um, and so we, we do try to find ways to to um, hold on to those valued team members. Great. Mm. I think part of that too is recognising that um, or encouraging men to see that they have an equal kind of opportunity to take on that primary carer role. Yeah. possibly as well, or share it kind of evenly with their partner. And I think the more men do that and the more that's recognised within our industry, the easier it becomes for women, as you say, stuff like the parental leave, as you say, and, and making sure it's noted as parental leave as opposed to maternity leave is yes. really important. I think. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Oh, look, we have a number of um, fathers who are on nine-day fortnight or um, we have uh, one away on parental leave at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, we, do, we do encourage the the balance as much as we can. Yeah, great. Mm. 
So in terms of that kind of balance, of balancing work and life outside of work, do you find, have you felt it difficult at different points of your career leading up to your role as principal? Mm, And ongoing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, there's no doubt about that. I reflect on this uh, quite a bit and I do find that it can be really exhilarating to work on something intensely over a period of time. And, uh, you know, it can be quite extraordinary what a team can achieve in a concentrated period of time. And that, Mm. that can be Wonderful. So I, I think for me, balance is not necessarily, you know, a day-to-day thing, but it's about um, finding ways where, you know, one can re-energise. That's not necessarily a strict pattern, I suppose. Yes. So yeah. That, yeah, that might be, you know, time away from the office um, yep. for, for days rather than perhaps leaving at the same time every night. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, finding time for extended periods of time away too, where you yep. can really reflect deeply on your your own career and, and your part in the practice. I think that can be really re-energising as well. Yeah, I think those mm. moments of recalibration are really important because sometimes mm. it is unavoidable um, that you have to work really intensively on mm. something, but knowing when you have the opportunity to take a break is also really important. Thank you, Megan and Isabel. Join us next week as the conversation between Isabel and Megan continues. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.